we got strapped into the space shuttle. It was the space shuttle Columbia on STS-61C. That is a scary, uh, a scary moment. The adrenaline is pumping to the max as the countdown progresses to the to the launch moment. But when you get to a point um, where you're supposed to go and it doesn't go, and then the clock keeps on counting and you get to zero and nothing happened. There's a lot of silence that uh, that that happens in those seconds. Well, okay, now now what? It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. Doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind. Be kind. Be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Utter silence. Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz felt the pulse of his racing heart, the countdown from ground control, and the sense that he's been here before. I mean, he's prepared his whole life for this moment, the moment of lifting off into space. He's been preparing since he was a kid, from sitting in a cardboard spaceship all the way to launching into space more times than any human in history. But how did he get here? Well, Dr. Franklin Cheng Diaz is a record-breaking NASA astronaut with seven flights into space and the CEO of the Ad Astra rocket company. He's managed to move to a new country, learn a new language, graduate at the top of his class, and persistently chase his dream all the way to space. Now, we launch ourselves back in time to when space travel was only a dream. We're talking about the, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, the very early 1900s. Um, China, uh, which, which is the birthplace of my, uh, my father's father, was in a great deal of turmoil. So, so China kind of split into two, one uh, following an, a nationalist um, approach, uh, and they were led by, by Chiang Kai-shek. And then the, the, the bulk of the population stayed in the mainland, uh, led by uh, Chairman Mao, and that uh, gave rise to uh, the modern-day China, which went through a major disruptive forces within the within the the country, leading to to what it is today, superpower. And so, my grandfather was at the very beginning when sort of the the the, the transformation of China began under a former um, medical doctor by the name of Sun Yat-sen. My grandfather was a contemporary of Sun Yat-sen. Uh, they were persecuted and many of them had to flee and my grandfather left. And that was the beginning of, of a new life for him. What, what country did he actually end up living in? Costa Rica. My uh, grandfather, along with many Chinese, uh, he became um, a merchant, uh, he, he did a lot of business work, and he married a Costa Rican lady. That was my grandmother, and they had 11 children, out of which um, uh, my father was number three. Now, my mother came from another sort of interesting family of immigrants. Uh, my, my, my maternal grandfather, uh, Hal, uh, he was from Costa Rica. He had immigrated to the United States around the 
time of the uh, first uh, world war married my uh, my grandmother and they had uh, three children and my mother was a uh, number three then my mother and father met in San Jose, married. Uh, he was also an immigrant himself. He went to Venezuela from Costa Rica. Uh, Venezuela was developing the oil industry. There was a lot of influx of capital. And so the country was bringing in lots of skilled laborers from all over South America. And my father took on that challenge and immigrated from Costa Rica to Venezuela. So I um, almost, I was almost born in Venezuela. What brought him back? My mom and my dad kept on coming back uh, to Costa Rica uh, multiple times, and uh, they decided that it was better for me to be born in Costa Rica. What was better about Costa Rica at that time? Oh, the medical system was much better. The uh, the social services of the government uh, were much, much better in Venezuela. Venezuela was very undeveloped. There was a lot of money, but not enough to balance. So what was life like in Costa Rica for you? So I, I my first memory is really aware of um, life in Venezuela. My parents wanted me to go to school there. That happened in 1957, which also happens to be the year when Sputnik was launched. I became fascinated with space with the opportunity of going to space, of exploring other planets. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you found out about Sputnik and why you decided to, I guess, dive into that, that interest? Like, do you remember the first time you're like, wait, they're doing what in space? My mother was also very interested in, in space uh, for some reasons. She was also very interested in science. She was not, uh, a scientist. Uh, she never really went to the university, and neither did my father. But she made it uh, uh, known to me that um, a new star had been had been put in the sky by people. People had, you know, launched a satellite. You know, a satellite. The word satellite was just beginning to be known. But that began to stimulate in my mind, the idea of exploring space. And that was also incentivized by the science fiction novels, the fictitious characters of space explorers who came uh, and went to discover new planets. And Did you ever actually find Sputnik? Like when you looked up at the night sky, did you ever see it? Never did. Really? Looked for it a lot, but never saw it. But in my mind, I did. And so was it that moment that you realized, like, you humans could put stars in the sky and then, like, looking at all these different, like, sci-fi TV shows or movies or stories, was that the moment you realized you wanted to explore space yourself? And, like, did you even have the concept of, I want to become an astronaut? Yes and no. There were no astronauts in those days. There, there were... Uh, like, Space explorers, you know, in the United States, uh, you know, we always he- uh, hear about the stories of uh, Buck Rogers. Um, in Costa Rica, we had and there was radio without TV at the time. In the radio, you could you could hear the stories of Louis the Dragon or Luis Dragon in in Spanish, who was the 
the conqueror of space. And you could listen to those uh, adventures on the radio every day at 5 um, p.m. after school. We would be glued to the radio listening to the, to the, to the adventures of uh, Louis the Dragon as he battled, uh, you know, uh, monsters in other planets. And you're like, I want to do that. I want to be Louis the Dragon. I want to be just like that. And um, there was another series that came in the in the early uh, movies, um, which was called Captain Video, an astronaut, but he also was a scientist. And that was another thing that began to sort of clear in my mind that the astronaut of the future was going to be a scientist. It's crazy to think, but at this time, there was basically no astronauts. Like you're essentially inventing this job that you want. You're like, I want to explore space like, they, like they're saying on the radio. Like, did you feel weird or did you even tell people that you had this dream of being a space explorer? Because I can't imagine there was a ton of your school mates that shared this dream. Um, most of the kids my age wanted to be astronauts or, or space explorers. I did tell people that I wanted to be astro an astronaut and people sort of chuckled about it and oh yeah well yeah okay that's great um and you know um let's move on to something else and let's move on to something that's like actually gonna happen let you know cool dream you know like let's talk about the real stuff yeah but in 58 uh, another thing happened was very important in my formation was uh the launching of the uh, Nautilus nuclear submarine, it dove in the in the North Pacific and reappeared in the North Atlantic. You know, like how? It, it went under the North Pole. And there was no submarine that could ever do that because, you know, they couldn't they couldn't stay there underwater that long. This submarine was the first nuclear powered submarine. And I began to learn about nuclear power. This is like, I was eight years old at the time. Eight years old, you're learning about nuclear power? You're built different, man. <laughs> it was a new way of um, a new energy source. And we all had learned, um, you know, about the atomic bomb. We had, you know, learned about the, uh, the H-bomb. And, and this nuclear, nuclear power had been presented to, to the world in, in a very violent um explosion and but you know but people were talking about uh, uh, nuclear power as the means of energy because i figured that someday in the future you know deep space ships um that went deep into space would have to be nuclear power as well that's the submarine and then in 1961 there was a whole race so who was going to be the first human to go into space? The first astronaut, real, you know, blood and bones astronaut went into space and happened to be a uh, Soviet, uh, Yuri Gagarin, who became my instant hero. Right, because now he's like, like he's turned the science fiction space explorer into, wait, this is something you could actually do. That's right. A real, a real human being. NASA, uh, what what just been created, uh, had selected seven astronauts, and that 
made it very clear that this was reality, that it was no longer science fiction, and that um, now all I had to do was find my way to either the Soviet Union or the United States. And so how did you start to think about like finding your way there? And is this something that you talked to your parents about where it's like, hey, I want to be an astronaut. I want to explore space. I need to be in America, not Costa Rica. Well, that's that's pretty much what I did. And, you know, we had become um, a family of immigrants, you know, beginning with my grandfather from China, my other grandfather who went to the United States, my father who went to Venezuela. It was completely logical that I would also immigrate somewhere. And I wasn't going to go to the Soviet Union. The United States seemed to me the more logical location for me to, to go. That was easier said than done because, you know, we didn't have the money to send me to the university. And of course, I didn't speak English either. So as soon as I finished high school, I began to try to figure out ways in which I could go to the United States. And, but, you know, nothing really worked out. And so I had to take on a job as a banker. In my family, as soon as you finished high school, you, you went to work. So I went to work at the National Bank of Costa Rica. And uh, my goal there was to, uh, first of all, not be a burden to my parents anymore. And uh, number two, to be able to save some money and see if there was any way that I can, I can go find a way to the United States. You were working as a bank teller after high school, trying to save up enough money to go to America so you could become a space explorer. Now that it was a real job, I guess, for like three people <laughs> out of well, millions. Let, let, let me give you a little, a little bit of context. So um, I wrote a letter to NASA. I explained to NASA that I wanted to be a space explorer. I wanted to you know, become an astronaut eventually. And, and to my surprise, I received a, a response. A response that I couldn't read because, you know, it was in English, but, um, but I did get it translated and I still have this letter. I mean, it's a very, the letter that I've conserved, I have it all my life, but I remember exactly the, the last line in the first paragraph, somebody had underlined the sentence that said, um, uh, careers with NASA are limited to United States citizens. They were trying to tell me, probably not to come. I misunderstood them to say, come on over and become a citizen, and then you'll get a job. Honestly, a pretty good. I mean, it, it set you up. That misunderstanding kind of set you up for uh, everything you did, you know, from that moment. So pretty good misinterpretation. It was designed to to, to, to make it work for me. So. Anyway, I finished, um, I, I, w I worked for a year at the bank and I saved uh, $50, $50. And I did find um, distant uh, cousins of ours who lived in Hartford, Connecticut. Wait, you worked for a year and then saved $50? Yes. Holy moly. I had to also contribute to, you know, the family. I, I, I didn't just get all the money that I earned and saved it. I had to pay for my, for my sustenance. But I did save some money, and $50 in those dollars is 
it's a lot more than fifty dollars today. No, I mean you gotta understand that, but uh, not not a lot more. But they they are worth a little better. Anyway, the the Zuniga family in Hartford, Connecticut, out of the goodness of their heart, uh, that I could go and stay with them, and that made a big difference because they were able to sponsor me. I got a visitor visa, which eventually became a student visa, because because my my strategy to learn English was to uh, go back to high school. So you're going to go back to high school a second time? A second time, yeah. It seemed like I was going backwards. I mean, I had already been a year out of, out of high school, and I, you know, I, I went back to high school. I felt uh, that it was the worth, a worthy effort because I, I would learn the language, and I was able to work part-time because I was now under a student visa. And when I went to high school, they put me in the, in the English orientation program, which I got out of that program right away because everybody around me spoke Spanish. And the only one who spoke English was the teacher. And the teacher was hard to understand because he was from, he was from, from Greece. So I thought, I'm not going to learn English here. So I got out. I told them I went to the to the principal and through interpreters there I let them know that I, I didn't want to be in that class and I wanted them to give me a chance to become a regular senior, take all the courses that a senior would take. I would attempt to graduate that year to get my degree and that it was going to be an experiment and it. If it didn't work, they could send me back to the uh, English program. But if I made the grade, I wanted my diploma. So how did you do? It was terrible. In the first the first marking period, I failed everything. I mean, I, and then uh, I began to get a little better. But, you know, little by little, towards the end of the year, actually me at the top of the class. And the reason was that, you know, all the stuff that I had already taken in high school in Costa Rica, I... You know, I already, I already knew it. The only problem I had was in, in the American history. And I really, really had to study hard. And also English literature that I had to, you know, really, really study hard with a dictionary in my, in my hand. And it was a long night. But I decided to leave the environment of Hispanic uh, environment that I was gravitating in. And I began to look and seek to make friendships with English-only speaking people. And I mean, that's how you really learn is like you, 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 have, to, you have to talk and learn and, and speak all in English. You have to be forced. And I tell you, as a young, young person, the, the best way to learn a language is to get, get a girlfriend or a, a boyfriend or whatever. <laughs> and you got to communicate somehow. And yeah. <laughs> you learn really quickly. So did you do that? I did that. Sure. Absolutely did that. The funny thing is that I did well enough that the school officials at Hartford High recommended me for a uh, scholarship at the University of Connecticut to study engineering. I, you know, I, I applied to three colleges and the third one gave me a full scholarship. That was the University of Connecticut. But when I got to the university, they said, Franklin, um, we're very sorry, but we made a mistake. Oh, no. And the mistake was that they, they confused uh, Costa Rica with Puerto Rico. Oh, my goodness. It was a very common mistake at the time because Costa Rica was very poorly known. Most people didn't know where Costa Rica was. So what did they do? Okay. So what happened was that um, I, I went back to the program 
officials that, that had recommended me for the scholarship and the school officials. And my, my understanding, according to what they told me, is that the petition went all the way up to the Connecticut legislature. And the legislature decided to grant me the scholarship anyway. And, and they did. And they gave me the scholarship at only for one year. I had a four-year scholarship, but this one, they said, well, we, we can only give, give, it, give it to you for one year. But they did something clever um, that the subsequent years, they only charged me in-state tuition instead of out-of-state. If I had to pay out-of-state tuition, it would have been impossible for me to continue. was able to get uh, good loans, and, and I, I kind of bootstrapped my way. I went to work in the university at, at a physics laboratory, which uh, really turned out to be one of the best things I ever did because um, that's where I learned all my experimental physics, uh, all the techniques, which eventually led me to grad school. Do you still have this idea that I want to be a space explorer, I want to be an astronaut? still as you're doing your bachelor's degree? Yes, I did. Were all of your professors like supportive of that? Because I mean, there was also a lot of changes that were happening to the space program as you were in uh, doing your degree. So would love to know like how that developed. 69 was the pinnacle of that was the landing on the moon. And, and I got to see that from the student, student union at the University of Connecticut. That was a freshman. And uh, just beginning my, my, my career as a, as a college student, and I thought uh, I, I was a little closer to, to my goal. Not too much, but I was at least in the right country, and I spoke the language, and the Apollo program was canceled. Uh, you know, people got kind of bored, just moon landings, and, and the war in Vietnam was going full bore, and lots of things were going on in the country. I was in the middle of all of that, and, and yes, absolutely, I changed the approach. Um, one of my professors said, you know, Franklin, you shouldn't even think about going into space because, into, into study aerospace because you're never going to get a job. And the reason is because there are thousands and thousands of aerospace engineers that are being laid off uh, because NASA's program has been shut down. And I tell people that I'm glad I didn't pay attention to that, but I did attention a little bit. Uh, I, I decided that it was important for me to, you know, to make a little course correction and modify the scope a little bit. I was fascinated by nuclear power. I started to get involved in nuclear energy. There was an energy crisis that hit the United States and the rest of the world when the oil embargo in the 1970s was an oil embargo. There were shortages of fuel and it was a huge problem with energy. And so I got involved in energy. You're still exploring like some of the, the things that, that inspired you as a kid, which is, which is pretty rare to, to have something that sparks joy or interest as a child and then like all the way even into your doctorate you're like still pursuing these things that that just sparked your curiosity so many years before i tell people that i i think i never grew up you know i just i've, I've been a little kid exploring my surroundings all my life and i probably will die doing that the fascination with nuclear power and the possibility of um not not the the conventional nuclear power that we had already deployed and, and nuclear reactants on the earth, 
that control fusion, you know, thermonuclear fusion, the power of the sun, you know, what makes the sun um, burn, what makes the stars burn. And I wanted to be a part of that. And that um, led me to graduate school. I, I would take a pause from the space program. I went into fusing power. I went to MIT and I was fascinated by the problem, harnessing the power of the sun. And that led me to plasma physics. I almost forgot about the space program until 1977. Several things happened. I graduated from, from MIT. I became a, a U.S. citizen. The thing that uh, they had asked me to do in that letter that I received from NASA, uh, I went to work at the Draper Laboratory uh, right next to MIT, working in something unrelated to the space program. But in 1977, the Space Shuttle Enterprise was presented to the world on the back of a 747 aircraft flying over the Hobby Blossom, California. And it would glide like a, you know, like a, like a bird. And, land on the on, on the dry bed of the of the desert um of the Edwards Air Force Base. And that said, the program has come alive. Wow. The space program is alive. And sooner or later NASA is going to be looking for more astronauts to fly the this machine that just starting to be operated. It had not flown into space yet. And in nineteen seventy seven NASA issued a call for a new group of astronauts for the shuttle program. And it was like perfect. I mean, it was like everything that we had planned for was sort of falling into play. I was a U.S. citizen. I, I had a PhD. I was in really good shape. I was young. You know, all of the ingredients that, that were required for an astronaut. I applied, and within a few weeks, a couple of weeks, I was rejected. Why? I mean, they were... Houses and thousands of applicants, and they just said, you know, for you, you didn't make the cut or whatever. And it was, you know, it's a big disappointment. But, but I figured, well, I, you know, I've come this far, I'm not just gonna, you know, quit. So, you know, I went to work and I kept on developing my capabilities and became a scientist. And then, sure enough, in uh, 1979, another letter, a call, another call came from NASA. They were looking for a smaller group. And um, I just, you know, opened my file cabinet, took out my, um, all the papers that I had prepared for the first uh, application, sent it to NASA, and I was called to an interview in the spring of uh, 1980. And that's when I began to think, oh man, maybe this is going to happen. I came to Houston for the first time, and it was then that I met all the heroes of my childhood that I had, you know, their pictures on my in my room, most of them were, were still there. Wow. They were a little older, but uh, they were still there. Things like that, and they spent a whole week doing that, and then they sent you back. They sent me back to back to Boston. Kind of forgot about it uh, because many months passed. Wait, you for, well, how could you forget about it? Isn't, like, isn't this the dream, though, to be an astronaut? Like, how could you forget about it? Maybe the, the word forget is probably not accurate enough. It's just like you put it in the back of your mind. Yeah. Because it, it seems like so impossible. And then in May, I, w- I was already working on this rocket engine that I'm, I'm working now, right? I was already developing those concepts. I was explaining that concept to... Um, 
the head of the gas turbine laboratory at, uh, at, at, at MIT. And I went to his office and he gets a phone call and sitting right in front of me, he does a phone call and he picked up the phone, talks to whoever it is. And then he says, it's for you. And he hands me the phone. On the other side is um, uh, Mr. Abbey, George Abbey. He was the head of the um, uh, flight operations directorate at the NASA Center, telling me that I have been selected to be in the next uh, group of astronauts. What was your response when you realized that you were going to be an astronaut? He wanted to know if I wanted a job. <laughs> I couldn't utter the word yet. It, it, it just couldn't come out for some reason. I thought at first it was a, some kind of a prank that the MIT guys had played on was playing on me. And eventually I somehow got my got my, my wits about me and, and I was able to say yes, surely of course I I accept the job. And that that day I know my life changed completely. That was the beginning. Wow. All those years of just wanting to become this explorer and now finally it comes to fruition. What are the steps to start actually being a space explorer? So now like they're like, hey, you got the okay. You are ready to become an astronaut. But what does that mean to start becoming an astronaut? What's the training like? What like what missions are you going on? Like, like, like what, what is the whole gamut of things that you have to do to actually be ready for this? Well, it took, it took a while. I mean, it, it took me six years before I actually flew from the time I was selected. So I, I selected in 1980, I flew in 86, uh, six years. And the reason is because the, the shuttle had not flown yet. Um, not even, not even the first flight had taken place. That happened a year later. The flights were not very frequent, uh, and um, we were all sort of supporting the crew that was going to fly. So there was a lot of uh, activity of you know technical support in you know learning or or training to be an astronaut. There's a lot of lot of things that you end up doing, but mostly you go back to you go back to learning about the systems of the shuttle. You you have to study. You have to you know understand procedures, uh, technical systems, and, and we also go into flight training. Uh, I had already started flying as a, as a glider pilot uh, back in, at MIT because it was a, a hobby I decided that I'd I like to, to, to learn to do. But this time I started flying the T-38, which is a jet, uh, a jet aircraft, a supersonic jet, and, and you know, learned to fly with the best uh, the best pilots in 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 the, in the U.S. military who were also selected as astronauts. So astronauts basically came of, of two kinds: you know, the military pilots, uh, and then the civilians or the, the scientists like me. And we kind of we, we kind of all came together and mixed together, and we all all learned from 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 each other. And we all had to fly these uh, the death mains, a lot of training for. Um, moving from one place to another and just learning to work in that light environment. That was, it was very important. Was there anything surprising in the training that you like didn't realize was going to be so crucial to become an astronaut or like something weird that happened during training? Like what was the most surprising or weird thing that happened during training? You were like, oh, I didn't even know that this 
was what we needed to know for being like to be an astronaut like like was there anything that comes to mind the one thing that was interesting to me was that uh, you know that there was a there was a change of culture that was taking place right right before my 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 eyes um as we went from the days of um mercury uh, you know gemini apollo and into the shuttle program and then ultimately into the space station program which is the the change in the flavor of the astronaut as becoming um, a frontline investigator an operational scientist but you know we have to adopt a lot of the the ethos and the and and the and the behavior and understand and the i guess the 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 mindset of of the of the military pilots uh, to work as a team, uh, all those all those uh, things that were seem to be a little bit um, weak that in the in the scientific training, and then the uh, and then the pilots had to become more scientific. They had to learn about you know the intricacies of an experiment and and why is an experiment. Uh, not working. Uh, what needs to be changed? Uh, so being being able to adapt and, and modify the conditions of the experiment simply because that's what you can do when you're in, in space. So it's almost like a symbiosis, a symbiosis between between the the mindset of the operator, which is the the, the military pilot, and the mindset of the explorer, which is the scientist. You know, the scientist is. It's exploring. It's, it's, it's looking for new things. The, the operator is more execute, ex- executing, executing procedures and getting it, getting them done, done correctly. So, how do you think you changed? You know, as you learned more of, I guess, what it meant to be an operator and a pilot, and more on the military side. Like, do you think you changed at all during the training? And how, how so? I did. I did. I became maybe more efficient in my thinking and, and executing and, and this had a huge, huge effect in being uh, the leader of a company in that, you know, we were fascinated by the world around you, uh, but you don't let that world absorb you and consume you to the point that you can't get anything done. So you, you have to be able to have a balance between that exploratory nature and the execution of, of of a mission that you you need to complete, and that's for one thing that I I admire. I really follow that um, approach, which comes strictly from the discipline of the military. Was there anything that came up in the training that was difficult or emotional or hard to go through, or was it all pretty easy? There was a lot of hard work. Nothing was extremely hard in the sense that I couldn't do it. I felt completely comfortable in the tasks that I was called to do, but you have to put in the time. You have to work hard. You have to learn the systems. You have to learn to understand how the systems interact, how do they work together, and what are the the gotchas, the, the pitfalls, the problems, and always being prepared, thinking not what you're doing at the moment, but what's going to happen next. And what's going to happen after that? Being able to be ready for eventualities. Some of them never happen, but when they do, 
you're ready. The key to being an effective astronaut is to be always prepared for the next failure and the one that comes after that. When do you actually have the go ahead, like, hey, you're going to be going to space? Yeah, that's that's another exciting moment when you've been training for so many years. And then one day, you know, they call you to the front office and they say, you have been assigned to this mission. You're going to fly with this crew. The crew gets together and it becomes like a little mini family. You begin to work together for at least a year, in some cases longer. You share an office, you, you do all the things together. It has a tremendous bonding that begins to take place at that point. And it is so exciting to be preparing for really going into space. That was, you know, for me, the culmination of a lifelong dream. And um, we got strapped into the space shuttle. It was the Space Shuttle Columbia on STS-61C. It was in January of 1986. And the funny thing is that we were strapped in that shuttle six times, and we didn't go. Why? Well, we had failures. We came to 15 seconds before launch in one attempt, and another one 30 seconds uh, before launch. So the clock stopped, and this is very nerve-wracking to be sitting you know, on top of this tank of half a million gallons of liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and, and somehow somebody's going to light the fuse, and it doesn't go. What's going through your head as it's counting down? That is a scary moment. The adrenaline is pumping to the max as the countdown progresses to the launch moment. But when you get to a point where you're supposed to go and it doesn't go, and then the clock keeps on counting and you get to zero and nothing happens, it really catches your attention. There's a lot of silence that happens in those seconds. And in those days, in the early days of the shuttle program, we didn't really understand the vehicle well enough. We didn't understand the system. I'm talking about we in the sense the entire launch control piece, not just the crew. All the launch controllers, uh, all the hundreds of engineers that are supporting the launch and supporting the mission. We uh, didn't fully understand all the limitations and possibilities. And there was a lot of fumbling going on in the early days. And... Of course, uh, we had smart people in the launch control center really in you know, us in the sense that launch controllers that made the right calls, made the, the right decisions. Even if they didn't know what was going on, they decided to be conservative and stop the, the count and, of course, not proceed without knowing what to do. But eventually, you know, I, I kind of got used to the fact that we were not going to go. You're like, this is never going to happen. It's, it's like, you want to be this space explorer. You're almost not able to go to America. And then you get to America and then you get into college. And then they're like, actually, you might not be able to get the scholarship. But then you get the scholarship. And then you're like, I want to be an astronaut and go into space. But then your professor's like, oh, you might not actually be able to be an astronaut. And then you apply, you get rejected. And you're like, oh, I might not be an astronaut. And then you apply again and get in. And you're like, okay, I'm going to be an astronaut. But you have to wait six years yeah. until you can actually like start prepping for space. And then it's all these failed attempts to launch. And you're like, all right, you know, I'm so 
I can taste space in my mouth, <laughs> but maybe it's never going to happen. The most of the dang things don't work. Can you walk me through the day that you finally make it to space? That was January the 12th of 1986. We had been attempting to launch multiple times. As I said, I wasn't prepared because I thought we were not going to go, but then we went. Things began to really build up very quickly. Well, can, wait, can you tell me about the countdown? Like what's happening at each stage of the countdown and like what you're feeling? Do you remember? Well, you know, it takes three hours sitting in that vehicle, very small. There's a lot of methodical procedures, checks and double checks and, and gates and, and things that you have to go through. And little by little, the crescendo begins to build up. You know, the clock is getting closer and closer to zero and things begin to come alive. You know, little by little, you feel the vehicle sort of shake a little bit and they begin to vibrate. And you start seeing that, the, you know, things are beginning to happen somewhere in the spacecraft. And at the moment that the clock gets into the, the last 10 seconds, it is adrenaline full pump, and you're looking at that moment when it goes to zero and you get this huge jolt, then it's like an earthquake, an earthquake that doesn't stop. It's the moment that everything shakes and you start feeling that you're being lurched forward very quickly, and eventually the G-forces begin to build up to the point that you can hardly move. So when I mentioned that it's like 800-pound gorilla sitting on your chest. Hard to breathe, certainly hard to execute procedures and throw switches. You want to be very careful uh, what switch you're going to throw. If you're going to throw a switch, you really have to think hard. Then it is like that for about eight and a half minutes. And then all of a sudden, the engines stop. And now you wrote. What was that like experiencing that, like that weightlessness and then seeing everything weightless? Like, It's, it's beautiful. For me, I, I mean, some people feel sick, feel nausea and disorientation. I was one of the lucky ones. And first thing I wanted to do was unstrap. And the next thing I wanted to do is go to the window and have a look. And I tell you, you go look at the window and it's just breathtaking what you see. And you see the spectacle of the earth. And you feel so, so powerful in one way and so fragile and sort of defenseless in the other way. I mean, you realize you're flying in this void, total vacuum, in this little, you know, shell of the spacecraft. And anything could happen, and you could die just in an instant. But at the same time, you get to be privileged enough to be separated from the rest of humanity for that moment to see everybody out in the whole world. And it's extraordinary. What did you actually do on that mission? You know, that mission was what we call a a vanilla mission. I mean, it was not that complicated. For me, of course, it is the most powerful because it was the first time I went into space and, and it was when I 
finally realized my long life dream. I was executing some experimentation. It so happened that we flew at the time that Halley's Comet was flying near the sun, and there were opportunities to observe the comet from the spacecraft. There were many medical experiments that were being conducted. And then we also did a lot of Earth observations. This is one of my favorite topics, this is just to look at the Earth and take pictures. From that day that I flew for the first time until the, the last mission that I did in 2002, I was able to see the changes in the planet from mission to mission. I was able to photograph them. I was able to see the changes in the forest and pollution coming through the oceans. You know, I, I was very lucky to have been able to observe the planet over such a long time, over so many flights. I had six more flights to go. And they were going to be increasingly more and more complex as time went on. I did exactly what I thought they wanted me to do, and I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I did it with the help of many people. I didn't do it myself, alone. There were a lot of people who helped me get to where I wanted to go. So January 12th, 1986 is when you did your first flight. And it was only a couple weeks later, January 28th, 1986, that there was another mission. And I was wondering if you could tell me about that day. Yeah, we say that that was the moment that we lost our innocence. That is the launch of Challenger. And it so happened that our crew had been assigned to the Challenger flight which was to take place a few weeks later. And because there was a lot of changes going on in the shuttle program and the missions were being shuffled around and owners were getting shuffled around, just the whole organization of the program was still in flux. We were shifted to the Columbia flight, which was to fly a few weeks earlier, on January the 12th. And... All of us in the crew moved to the Columbia flight, except for one. And that person was Greg Jarvis. Greg Jarvis was a member of our crew, and he did not get shifted. He stayed in the Challenger flight and, and picked up another crew, which is the crew that actually flew the Challenger mission. And it was just pure luck that you know, that he were moved. We landed on the 18th of January of 68, and only 10 days before the launch of Challenger. And we were actually in the middle of uh, some of our flight uh, debriefs and took a little break on the 28th to watch the launch of Challenger. And that was, of course, just a horrible moment to observe and to, you know, to experience the loss of our friends. And, you know, one of my closest friends was Mike Smith. He was the pilot of that mission. He was making his first flight. And um, I remember I had called Mike on the day of launch. I offered um, him a little glimpse of what it was going to be like to fly in space, and I wished him well and told him that it was going to be great. And 
to watch that moment where he died and everybody else died affected me so profoundly that never again did I call a crew member prior to their flight to wish him you know, a good flight. I'm not a superstitious man, but I just couldn't do it. You know, I just could not wish anybody else the subsequent flight. Do you remember what actually happened that day as they took off? Like, when did you know that something was wrong? Well, they, I mean, the vehicle exploded uh, in midair. It was pretty clear that uh, this, this catastrophe. It took three years of, of very careful reconstructing all the evidence and videos and all the data that came back to understand what really happened. But it was one of those cases of a collection of, you know, errors in thinking and a collection in, in miscalculating consequences and collective failure on the part of a, of a team to, to anticipate a, a failure that had been presented before them. But, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong. Flight control and the, the launch control team has to make a decision whether you go or don't go. In many cases, we launched uh, the shuttle with still open questions, certain components that were perhaps going to fail. And it was considered by the whole collective team that it, it was a, an acceptable risk. So this is the way life is. It's, it's a collection of you have to be willing to take a risk. And the risk has to be very carefully managed by your understanding of the behavior of the hardware, but it is impossible to know everything. There's always uncertainty. So like having that terrible experience of losing some of your closest friends and how do you mentally prepare yourself for that next mission? Because you eventually, you know, you did another mission in 1989 at the Atlantis Orbiter. The goal and get on that space shuttle with different mindset, with a, a much more sober, you know, recognition that it is not all going to be perfect. And that there, there are dangers lurking there that can, that can kill you. And the first flight, that was all theoretical. Uh, we we knew that there were dangers, but it's all theory. It's not reality until you experience it, as you pointed out, so close, so close to you. It could have been me. And so when I got to my fucking flight, I, I just had a different perspective. It's, it's maybe the, the perspective of a soldier that has been wounded in battle, has a few scars and, and, and knows things can hurt. But that doesn't prevent you from doing the job. It, it just gives you more respect for the machine, for the, the thing that you're, you're living in and that you're driving and learning to understand its limitations, its capabilities. And I have to say, you know, the second flight for me was a lot more familiar to me. I understood 
the machine. I knew how they hold. When I looked at the earth, I knew what I was looking at. It didn't just look like a beautiful, you know, spectacle of this planet, but I could see things that I had already anticipated. And so I, I actually enjoyed the second sight better than the first and the third one better than the second one and so on. It's just getting better and better. Well, let's talk about Endeavor, June 2002. That was your last flight, right? Right. I mean, did you know that was going to be your last flight? There was no indication that was given to me that that was going to be my last flight. But I kind of felt that I would certainly my, my glass runneth over, as they say. I had tied the record for the most uh, space flight of any human being. There were only two of us who had flown seven missions. And so if I were to have another flight, that would be a world record. I just felt that I had definitely gotten a lot more than I had expected. Yeah. So what did you do on that mission? Because something new happened there too, the spacewalk. It was probably the, the most taxing and complex precision-wise in activities I had to not be on the spacewalk. I had been training uh, for space uh, walking for many years. I felt very comfortable spacewalking, but I had never done it. And I really, really enjoyed it when I was out of the spacecraft. It was just a beautiful sensation. It was a little scary, I have to admit. Yeah, what was scary about it? There was one time when, when I was um, being transported uh, on the end of the robotic arm uh, on the station from one end of the station to the other. It's, you know, it's a very long arch and riding along on the top of the arm. And when it got to the top of the arm, the, the arm stopped. It broke. You're on the outside of the International Space Station? Yeah. And I think, you know, here I am standing at the end of this hall that about 50 feet long, and um, all of a sudden we go into the dark side of the earth. It happened quickly, you know, when, when, when the sun set, it sets very quickly and you're stuck there. You're stuck there. <laughs> were you, were you sweating inside that spacesuit? I was so scared because I, I had become very sensitized to the problem of the brain, you know, little screws or or nuts and bolts that uh, people have lost, or maybe satellites that have collided and crashed and created fragments. And more and more, the space, which uh, only used to have one satellite uh, back in 1967, now it's had a, you know, half a million of the objects. So I was a little concerned. I'm thinking like a, an astronaut should be thinking, if, you know, what should I do? What will I do if something happens here? What will be my next move? How am I going to get down from this thing? if I get hit. Uh, so, you know, I started to think about those things and kind of prepare myself just in case. And then all of a sudden we went into the, um, the dark side and we were flying over the ocean. There was very little light on the ground and I kind of lost sight of the earth and the, the space station and the whole spacecraft behind me, what was looking in front of me was just stars everywhere. And I kind of began to feel a sense of uh, isolation. I mean, like I was all alone in the universe there. And you have these feelings and they, they give you a sense of fear, but not panic. I mean, this is a, it's an interesting feeling that you have to learn to control. And in the meantime, you know, <clears throat> the guys in mission control and folks in the crew in the state station were trying to troubleshoot the, the front of the arm. 
And eventually they got it working. They tell me that all they did is they power cycled it. They turn it off and turn it back on. That's so funny. So it eventually got working and you got back into the uh, International Space Station, right? Yeah, then I continued to move back to the point I was intended to go to and completed my task and everything worked out okay. We we did actually some nice set of activities. We had to build a, a piece of the station. We had to put a mobile transporter on the rails of the space station so that it could transport payloads back and forth. And we actually did some fairly major surgery on the on the arm itself, eventually at the, on the last spacewalk. And we got a sixth in the arm, uh, worked just fine for many, many years after that. Okay, so eventually you get back to Earth, but I want to go over what you learned over your, your seven space flights. Well, the observation is the growth of the, the weight of humanity on this planet. You know, I was able to take a lot of photographs, so I could see, you know, the cutting of the rainforest, the areas of Central America that also were being cut as well. Surprising to me, Africa was the world at night, full of lights of the cities, and you could see very well, you know, the, the makeup of all the cities. And there were, there were fires that I could tell, you know, all over the, the, the continent. And then here in the Bay, you see a lot of the smoke that would be produced in one part of the world, how it would migrate into another part of the world. So, like, smoke being produced in South America from the burning of the, uh, of the rainforest. You know, all of that smoke would go and spill into the, uh, into the ocean, and then eventually you just see it would migrate to, you know, other parts of the world, depending on the currents of the air, that it would go to the west or to the east. There were interesting things at night. United States, for example, in my first flight, the eastern seaboard at night was lit up completely, but in very little light, uh, you could see um, West Virginia and those, uh, when you start getting into the middle part of the country, it was not as densely populated with light. But as the, the flights uh, progressed to the, the 2000s, and certainly on, on my last flight, the U.S. at night was lit up uh, pretty much all the way through past the Mississippi River, all the way into the desert. So it was clear to me that uh, there was a huge expansion of the population all over the planet. And the world had grown from maybe five to about seven billion people now. And that burden of humanity certainly has created a huge uh, dent on the resources that we have available to us. And so what do you see as the solution to that? Well, we have to do two things. One is we have to make do with less and be less uh, wasteful and clean and, and protect and take better care of our environment. You know, this is what happens to all the astronauts that fly in space, that they come to realize that, you know, that we on this planet are all astronauts and that the planet is our spacecraft. And to an astronaut, the most important system of your spacecraft is the life support system. 
it's not the propulsion system or the, or the communication system or the electrical power system. Here's the life support system. If you lose the life support in your only spacecraft, you will die. And, and so, to me, it's a very sobering realization. In the 21st century, I think humanity has come to realize that, you know, the environment is presenting us with our own waste. And we have no other choice than to deal with it. And if we don't, we will die. And, and, and that's the first thing that we have to do is to, is to take care of our environment and, you know, take care of our life support system. The second thing that we have to do is realize that sooner or later, the planet will be too small for the size of humanity, and we will have to find other places for humanity to grow and prosper. We are only limited by our technology, our ability to find and, and to colonize other places. And we need to endeavor to truly become a spacefaring uh, species to have other planets where we can live. And in my, in my dream, the Earth eventually should become a national park, which would be the legacy that we you know, give to our, our generations that come after us. Can you lead me through how you thought about this this next part of your career after your last mission with the Endeavor? That's within NASA. I was an astronaut, but I was also a rocket scientist. I was working as director of this laboratory, which I had helped found because I wanted to build this rocket. Like I said, I, I think I mentioned to you, I, I don't think I ever grew up. You know, it's just I wanted to play with all these things that I, I wanted to do. And I still do. I come here to work every day, and it's like I'm in my playpen, you know. But anyway, you know, the, the, the important thing here is that I was working on this rocket development, but I was finding that NASA was going a little too slow and had not been able to appreciate maybe the importance of transitioning to high-power electric propulsion. So I felt uh, it was important to get into the private sector because I felt that the private sector was much more agile. Decisions were made quickly. The only problem was that I had to find my own funding. Now, NASA allowed me to take this laboratory and privatize it. That was a, a pretty amazing thing for a government to agree for one of its employees. You know, I was a civil servant to basically retire and just take the whole laboratory and turn it into a private company. So I created the, the company right then and there. And NASA was extremely forthcoming and really supported this process uh, to the point that I was working at Astro Rocket Company. And at Astro Rocket Company was still the same facility in the NASA building. You know, I wasn't paying any rent. I wasn't paying any electricity. But, you know, like I said, you have to take a risk. And I did that. I took all the savings that uh, we had in our family, $50,000 that I had saved. And I put the same, the first investment in the company. And with that, I was able to pay the insurance to get out of the uh, government environment and be on a private entity, become a private entity. I didn't have enough money to pay salaries, but I convinced um, one of my board members who had a small company to help us, you know, float the, the team for a, a 
few months until I was able to raise the money. And, and within maybe three months after their company was formed, I raised $6 million. I had never had so much money in my life. And it, it gave me a, the wrong impression about raising money. I thought raising money was extremely easy. It turned out that it's extremely hard, but without money, I was able to bring back the team, uh, pay back all the, the borrowed money that I that uh, my friend had spent on supporting the team for a few months. And then we were up and running. And, and at, at that time, I started to transition the, the experiment that we had been doing at the NASA facility into more of a technology product that would be a real a real engine that we could test in space. Incredible. So you're on your way. It's been a long journey, and but you know, I guess one thing that I I've always had in my life is I don't give up. That you don't. Very persistent. Well, yes. I mean, we we need to enable humans to really truly move out into space. It's a way to keep Earth pristine and beautiful, and and a legacy for for future generations. But I've been working on this propulsion system for now. I count to close to forty two years dedicated pretty much all of my adult life to, to enabling this capability so that human can feel free to, to, to roam and exploit all the possibilities that we see in the solar system. People have talked about we, we need to move from the horse and buggy, you know, to the railroad and, and to the steam, the steam boats, from sailing boats to steam boats to airplanes. And, and, and so that means space needs to be open to all. Space needs to be a place of business, place of work, and let humanity explore, but let all of humanity explore, not, not just a few, you know, a dozen countries that have their, you know, the technology to do it. I think uh, we need to find a way to make space accessible to all humans. How did you begin starting to do that at Astra? Well, one of the key ingredients to enable that uh, sort of expansion of humanity into space is the transportation problem. To be able to have a means of transportation that is fast, efficient, and sustainable. We need to move away from uh, chemical propulsion, but we need to find a means of transportation that can get us in space from point A to point B much more efficiently, much faster, much more sustainable. And that is what electric propulsion and plasma propulsion uh, is all about. And that's what Ad Astra was, was built around. You really need to have a supply chain that is, is sustainable and fast and efficient. Right now, we don't have that. When you see a, a, a rocket that goes into space, most of what you see is just a huge fuel tank. And the payload, the useful component of that rocket is only a tiny little bit. And is it is extremely, you know, fuel intensive to get anything, you know, delivered to the moon or to Mars. And, and I just don't think that that's the right way to do it. I, I think we need to have a means of transportation that brings in electricity, and that is where nuclear power comes into the game. So looking back on your life story from beginning, you know, where you are now, what advice do you think you'd give to someone trying to achieve their childhood dreams, like trying to start a company, trying to uh, fulfill their potential? What, what advice do you think you would give that person or, or your younger self? I, I, I think the most important advice is 
that in order to succeed, you have to be willing to fail. The other advice is that you have a destination that you want to go, but there's a collection of small steps and you have to be learning from those steps. It's much better than analyzing things, you know, endlessly and be paralyzed by this analysis, you know, only making long, big leaps that sometimes lead you to the wrong place. So small steps better than big leaps. And I guess one third is don't do things alone. Work with others. All my wins have been as part of a team. I have not done it myself. No one gets anywhere without someone else's help. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mikawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Mena. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lu, and Dina Gabriel. See more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.